Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Also, this time around we're talking about a horror novel, so the reading is quite tense. If that is something that you do not wish to experience right now, you can skip ahead 18 minutes from the start of the reading. Additionally, a list of content notices is in the show description. stories that did make it. I'm Hilary B. Visniecks. Listeners, I don't really think I need to introduce my guest today anymore. Uh, Sarah Gailey is a Hugo-winning author, fan writer, uh, Instagram live doer, terrifier of me specifically, rudely. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, also was the first ever guest on this show. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me back in spite of everything I have done and been. (laughs) Uh, Before we uh, get into the book today, I have two questions for you. First Mm -hmm. of all, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? And second of all, how very dare you? Well, I'm so glad you brought up those points. Uh, allow me to answer your question with a question. Uh, <laughs> suffer. <laughs> um, so, uh, listeners, today we're going to be talking about uh, Just Like Home, which comes out sometime in the nebulous future. July? Mm, I should know this one. <laughs> 19th? Is it July 19th? That sounds correct. Let me just double check. I'm brain dead today. July 19th. July 19th. It's it's a Monday, so like, you know, we have excuses. You know. It's the thing that happens. July 19th. Just Like Home will be coming out on July 19th. Uh, And is there anything that we need to know before we get into the reading? Um... No, I'm not telling you- I'm not telling you shit before we get into the reading. (laughs) Uh, No, I will. I will tell you that uh, I am reading not from chapter one, but from chapter... I will be doing a reading from chapter four of Just Like Home. Oh, Jesus Christ. uh Uh-huh. Vera is 11 years old, and she is afraid. There are noises again. They woke her up a few minutes ago, thumps and scrapes and scrabbles, and once a dull, wet slap. The noises are coming from under her bed, and she is sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are the result of something bad. Vera still has one ear pressed to her pillow. Her pillowcase has foxes on it. Her hair is long and blonde, and it fans across the fox pillow in a meander of tangles. This is the last summer she will sleep with the fox pillowcase. It's for little kids, and she wants something more mature soon. Not grown up, she doesn't say that anymore. She says mature, or she says adult. (laughs) She wants something more mature soon, but the fox pillowcase stays cool, even on the nights when her open bedroom window lets in nothing but stickiness and katydid sounds. 
So for now, it can stay. She knows that the sounds outside her window are Katie Dids and not Cicadas because her father told her that Cicadas mostly make noise during the day while Katie Dids mostly make noise at night. Her mother calls both noises that racket and closes up her own bedroom windows to keep that racket out. The noises that are coming from under the bed are louder than that racket. That's how Vera knows that the sound is closer to her than the bugs are. The bugs are outside. The sounds are inside. They're inside for sure. Vera eyes the vague shapes that are scattered throughout the bedroom. The shapes are black against the ambient gray of the darkness, which is cut only by a vague notion of moonlight from outside and the insubstantial glow of Vera's nightlight. That nightlight is beside the bedroom door, a hundred miles away. Vera always tells herself that the nightlight is there so she can see the door in the dark and so she doesn't trip over the piles of clothes that now in the darkness look like unknowable, hungry, gape-mouthed monsters. <laughs> she tells herself that she isn't scared of the dark. She's too mature for that kind of thing now. She's outgrown it. There is something bad under the bed, and it's making those sounds. She's certain that if she moves, the bad thing will know she is awake, and if it knows she's awake, it will get her. That's how these things work. They wait until a person is awake enough to be scared. They wait until a person is conscious enough to hope for mercy, and then they don't give any mercy at all. Hmm. Did one of the vague shadows on the bedroom floor move? Vera tries to remember if she left a pile of clothes in that spot, that very spot. Surely she doesn't own so many clothes that they could make such a huge black shape on the floor so close to the foot of her bed, does she? She can't get to the door now. If she tried, she would have to do two impossible things. Get out from under the covers and let her feet touch the floor. She can't do that. If her foot touches the floor next to her bed, then something will reach out lightning fast and grab her ankle, and then it will have her. There's a long, slow scrape from just beneath her head. Vera breathes through her nose, only through her nose, short, shallow breaths that she hopes will be the right kind of quiet, but then she has second thoughts. She's pretty sure that she usually sleeps with her mouth open. Has the thing under the bed been there for so long that it will recognize the difference between her asleep breathing and her awake breathing? The noises are getting closer, she's sure of it. A sound like scrabbling claws reverberates through the wall above her pillow, and she makes tight fists in the cotton of her summer quilt. The cotton wicks the sweat away from her palms. Her sheets wick sweat away from the rest of her. There's a lot of sweat all of a sudden. She bites down on her pillowcase, trying not to make a sound, trying not to let it know that she's awake. She's not trying hard enough. A thin whine escapes her throat. She can't be alone in the room with the thing under her bed. Whatever it is, whatever it wants, whatever it's planning, she can't face it alone. She's too small. She's too scared. This is the first time she has ever felt ashamed of that. In the past, whenever she felt too small or too scared, it was okay, and she asked for help, and she usually got it. But now she is 11, and soon she will be 12, and after that she'll be a teenager. And she knows from the bigger kids at school that she has to get rid of her fox pillowcases and her nightlight and her small, bony, fearful body. She isn't there yet, though. What she needs is her parents... She really wants her father because he's bigger and stronger than her mother, and Vera is not sure how big the thing under the bed is. Either of them would do, though. But not both. Both would be too complicated. Her mother, Daphne, is a tight perm with highlights in it, skinny arms with freckles on them, and a full mouth that's always pressed into a thin line. If she comes into the room, she will look at Vera with tired disappointment. She'll sit on the bed and tell Vera everything's okay, but she'll add that this can't keep happening, that Vera's getting too old for this, and she'll bring it up next time Vera wants to watch a television show that starts after 9pm. <laughs> Vera's father is a lot easier about these things. He's a big wall of clean soap smell with curly brown hair that's thinning in the back, a crooked smile with a chipped tooth in the front, big ropey muscles in his arms from cutting lumber all day. He'll scoop Vera up close into a hug after he's checked the bed and the closet and the curtains in the corners. He'll tell her that there are no monsters there. He'll check twice if she asks. But either of them is fine, really, just so long as somebody comes. 
The wet slapping noise comes again, followed by a thick, gurgling gasp. Vera squeezes her eyes shut so tight that they ache, and she grips her quilt hard, and she decides that the time has come to be as brave as she can, because if she isn't brave, it will get her. She sits up in her bed and screams. By the time she's run out of air, her father's footsteps are outside her door, and then he's in the room, and the lights are on, and he's standing there, solid and breathless, looking at her with wide, fearful eyes. What's wrong? What is it? Are you hurt? He looks around the room fast, his gaze hitting every corner of the room before jumping back to her. Her voice fails her. The noises have stopped and the lights are on, and what if there's nothing? What if she tells her father what she heard and he thinks she's being an overdramatic kid? Hmm. She wonders if she should lie and say there was someone looking in the window or that she had a nightmare. But then she imagines her father turning the light off and leaving her alone in the room with the wet scraping sounds from beneath her bed. Her stomach drops. She can't do that. She needs help. Even if asking for it winds up making her look like a baby. There's something, she says, under the bed. Her father's shoulders drop, and some of the fear drains from his face. What is it? he asks, entirely serious. He always does that, takes Vera seriously, even when he could roll his eyes at her like Daphne would. Hmm. A monster? A person, I think, she says. She only says that because she thinks that it would sound immature to say, yes, definitely a monster. <laughs> a murderer, she adds, because she's not sure if a person seems scary enough to justify a middle-of-the-night scream. Her father nods gravely. His eyes are bloodshot and his cheeks are flushed. Vera figures he must be tired, must have jumped out of bed and run into the room fast when he heard her screaming. How do you know there's a murderer, he asks, his voice soft and somber. I heard him, she whispers. He's under the bed. I heard him. Let's take a look, he says. Vera's gut clenches. She bites the inside of her cheek to keep from saying, don't. What if there is a murderer under the bed and they get her father? But if there's a murderer, someone will have to be the first to see them. And Vera believes that her father is the best one to do that job. So she clenches her toes under her blanket. And she doesn't say anything as her father crosses the room with deliberate steps, his boots falling heavy on the smooth wood of the floor. Hmm. She wonders distantly when he puts his boots on. Shoes aren't allowed in Vera's mother's house. But that thought is quickly swept away by the rapid current of her fear. Vera's eyes stay fixed on him. His eyes stay fixed on the bedskirt. He arrives next to the bed and slowly, cautiously lowers himself into a crouch. Vera takes a deep breath and holds it, ready to scream again. Her father locks eyes with her. He lifts a finger to his lips. Vera releases her grip on her quilt and claps both hands over her mouth to keep herself from making a sound, because if her father thinks she should be quiet, that she will be quiet. He nods at her, then looks back to the bedskirt. He reaches out with one huge, steady, scarred hand. One of the hands that he used to build this bedroom. One of the hands that cupped the back of her skull when she was a baby. He reaches that hand out, and with sudden fluid speed, he whips up the bedskirt and looks at what's behind it. He looks for a long time. He looks for so long that Vera lets her hands drop away from her mouth so she can brace herself on her palms and lean toward him, what is it? She finally whispers, unable to bear it any longer. <laughs> Vera's father sits back on his heels, wipes his forehead with the back of one arm, and leans forward to rest both of his elbows on her mattress. His fingernails have something black crusted beneath them, dark crescents that Daphne would make him scrub away with a stiff brush if she saw. I have bad news, V, her father says. There's something under there, all right. And it's pretty scary. Half of Vera recognizes this tone of voice, knows that he's about to make a joke. 
The other half of her is taking in the faint sheen of panic on her father's face, the bloodless pallor of his cheeks, the thready capillaries and the whites of his eyes, and that half of her knows that something is wrong. But then his face crinkles up into a wide smile. It's the biggest dust bunny I've ever seen. He laughs, and she laughs with him, her eyes landing on his chipped tooth, not because what he said is actually funny, but because he wouldn't make a joke like that if there was a monster. <laughs> Vera's father checks the whole room, the corners and the closet, behind the curtains, and one more time under the bed, just in case. His boots are loud. Mud falls off them as he walks. Mud that Vera will have to clean up tomorrow before her mother sees. Shoes aren't allowed in the house. Why are you so dirty? Vera asks when her father has come to sit on her bed and told her that there is definitively no one but the two of them in the room. What do you mean? he asks, his brow tight, his eyes darting between hers. There is sweat at his temples, darkening his already dark curls. Vera isn't sure why she didn't see it before, except that she was too busy being scared to really see that, or the mud that cakes his boots. Your nails are dirty and you have mud on you, she says, pointing. Oh, he says. He frowns at his nails. Vera frowns at them, too. Now that she's looking at them closely, she can see that the dark grime is tucked in along the sides of his nails, too, and in the creases of his knuckles. I cleaned the gutters earlier. I guess I didn't scrub hard enough before dinner. He winks at her, the frown so completely gone that it might never have been there at all. Don't tell your mother. You know how she gets. <laughs> Vera winks back, a trick she's only just got the hang of. I won't tell. Hey, Dad, you don't need to say hey. I'm already listening to you. You only need to say hey if you're trying to get someone's attention. Sorry. Dad, if there's nothing under the bed, what were those noises? Vera swallows hard, afraid that he'll say the noises were her imagination. Adults say that kind of thing sometimes, and it makes her feel ridiculous, or like they might think she's ridiculous. Sometimes she does imagine things, but not those noises. Those were real. She's sure of it. Francis uses one fingertip to trace the outline of two adjacent squares on Vera's quilt. She winces because his fingers look so filthy, but he doesn't leave any dirt on the bedspread. It's all stuck to him, all worked in. Mm. Our house is shaped like this, right? Okay, she says, hesitant because she isn't sure if the house is a perfect rectangle. Plus it has a roof on top that isn't flat, plus there's the garden shed in the backyard. So here's the top floor where your mom and I sleep, and where mom has her sewing room. And I have my office, which used to be your bedroom, he says, pointing to the top of the two squares he traced. They swapped his office and her bedroom just a few months before when Daphne had declared that she couldn't sleep with all that racket from outside, and Vera had declared that she couldn't sleep with her window closed. He continues pointing to the bottom square. And here's the first floor, where there's the kitchen and the living room and the dining room and the bedroom. And the mudroom, Vera adds. Her father smiles. And the mudroom. He smells like clean sweat and rich earth and something sharp, something that reminds Vera of the way the air smells right after lightning strikes during the summer storms that shake her window pane. And down here, he says, pointing below that bottom story square, is the basement. I'm not allowed, Vera says quickly. This is a firm rule, and she obeys the rule, even though her best friend Brandon keeps asking if they can sneak down there and look around. That's right, her father says. It's my workshop, and the tools are very dangerous, and, and there are really big spiders, Vera finishes for him. She remembers this fact, and as a result, is never tempted to go into the basement, in spite of Brandon's eagerness and the allure of not allowed. <laughs> Huge, Vera's father says. Like cats! Vera laughs because she's supposed to, because the idea of a spider the size of a cat is supposed to be silly, because she's not supposed to be afraid that maybe it's real and possible and waiting to fall on her face in the middle of the night. Vera's father smiles at her, then lowers his hands, resting them over the two quilt squares that represent the house he built. But... I've never told you this until now because I didn't want to scare you. 
There are other things in the basement, too. Things worse than spiders. A shiver runs up Vera's spine fast as a water snake vanishing under the garden shed. Like what, she whispers, her imagination blossoming faster than her fear can keep up with. Possums, her father says, and raccoons. They come in looking for trash, looking for a place to have their babies. I know you think they're cute, he says, holding up a finger to stop Vera from deciding that the basement holds fresh appeal. <laughs> but they're not. They're wild animals, and sometimes they have rabies. They'll run up and bite you as soon as you set foot in that basement. Vera isn't sure if she believes him or not. She's never seen a possum before, but she's seen raccoons ambling through the side yard near the garbage cans. They're fat and clumsy, and they look soft. They don't look like they'd bite her. But she remembers the tools and the spiders, and rabies sounds like bad news. She decides that the basement holds no temptation, even if there might be baby animals in there with big eyes and soft fur. So that's what that noise was? Possums? Probably raccoons this time. I thought I saw one down there earlier today. Vera's father smooths out the quilt under his palms, his eyes on the movement of his own hands. I'll set a trap for it and get rid of it. If you hear those noises again, don't worry, okay? It's just animals that wandered in and want a way out. Hmm. Sometimes they don't understand where they are, and they get scared, he adds. Sometimes they get hurt, and I have to help them escape. Something has come into Vera's father's voice, some faraway thing that she knows he will not explain to her. Adults do that all the time, talking around big feelings and ideas as if no one will notice that they're saying two things at the same time. <laughs> Vera knows he will not tell her the secret of what this means to him. His shoulders are drooping as though a weight has settled across them, and his eyes are starting to glaze over, and his fingers are suddenly tight around fistfuls of her quilt. Vera thinks that he must be very tired. After all, she did make him run into her bedroom in the middle of the night. She lies back, letting her head rest stiffly on her pillow, the clearest I'm ready for bed signal she knows how to broadcast. Thank you for checking under the bed, she says. Of course, V. Hey, will you promise me something? You don't have to say hey, she replies softly. I'm already listening. He smiles, releasing her blanket. Promise you won't go into the basement to see the animals, he says. It's really very dangerous. You could get hurt. His voice is gentle. Serious. And he's looking right at her. This, she understands, is big. This is the way adults talk to each other. Her father isn't telling her a rule. He's telling her a why. And he's asking her for a promise. She nods solemnly, her hair shushing against the fox pillowcase. I promise, she says. Vera's father kisses her goodnight and pulls the covers all the way up to her chin. It's not how she likes to sleep. She prefers her arm on top of the covers. But she likes it when her father tucks her in, and she knows he won't keep doing it for much longer. So she doesn't move until after he's turned off her light and shut her door. Vera closes her eyes and lets her head sink down deep into the soft, cool embrace of her fox pillowcase. When the noises resume under her bed, the long, harsh scrapes and the wet slaps and the rich gurgling and the high, tight, painful squeals, she doesn't open her eyes. It's just an animal, and her father will take care of it by morning. Still, she can't help but give a little, involuntary shiver at the sounds. She slips one arm out from under the blanket and lets it dangle off the edge of the bed. In school that day, her teacher told the class about superstitions, which are things that people believe will keep them safe, like magic, but different. Now, Vera is still undecided as to whether or not she believes in magic. It ultimately depends on whether believing in magic turns out to be kid stuff or very adult stuff. But a superstition seems like something outside that question. Something anyone might have. 
right now, when she's a little afraid, even though there's nothing to be afraid of, feels like the perfect time to try out a superstition of her own. Her small hand hovers in the darkness of her bedroom, her elbow bending ever so slightly backward over the edge of the mattress in a casual hyperextension. She waits for the next thud from the basement, which makes her startle even though she knows now that it isn't anything scary. <laughs> when the thud comes, she snaps her fingers four times fast. The sounds fade quickly. Vera smiles at the quiet and returns her hand to the bed, resting her arm on top of the covers. She decides that she likes this new superstition. She decides that it works. Three years from now, when there are policemen at the door, she will feel afraid. But right now, even with an occasional faint noise drifting up from the basement, she's not afraid. Between her father and this new superstition she's decided on, there's nothing to fear. She falls asleep so quickly that she doesn't register the faint sound that comes from beneath her bed. It is the sound of clumsy fingers trying to learn how to snap four times fast. <sighs> Jesus fucking Christ! <laughs> Like, I just read that chapter a couple days ago. I know I, I know the first third of this book, and that, like, whole thing still had me completely on edge. <laughs> Don't worry, the rest of the book after that is really nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's the... There's nothing scary, for instance, in chapter five. Certainly not, no. Absolutely not. Uh, but this, like, to be perfectly serious for a moment, this is the scariest fucking book I've ever read. <laughs> that means so much to me. Oh like, my goodness. I, I, I have a lot of good touch points of very scary books. Like, I've read, for instance, Caitlin Starling's The Luminous Dead, which is a very scary book. That's a very scary book. <laughs> and I've read also Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation and the rest of uh, the Southern Reach trilogy. And, like, the things that happen in those books are very scary sometimes. And this is more than that. Oh, that that does my little terrible heart good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Hillary. I'm very glad to have scarred you. I I have I have sold a lot of people on this book already by just telling them not to read it in the dark like I did. <laughs> I and thankfully, cannot believe you did that. I only read to chapter three in the dark. I didn't get to chapter four in the dark or I would not have slept and you would have been getting a text message. <laughs> you know, I had a similar experience recently. I read Zin E. Rockland's Flowers for the Sea, oh, which no. is a wonderful, completely deranged book, um, really excellent body horror in there. And there's a scene that has a very upsetting encounter with a bathtub. And I didn't know that going in, so I was reading it in the bath. Oh, no. And in this scene, the character can't get out of the bathtub for reasons I will not spoil. <laughs> and I was sitting there in my bathtub thinking, I'm pretty sure I could get out if I wanted to. <laughs> But I did not test it, not until I was done with the book. <laughs> yep, yep. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. You know, just just trying to not test anything. Yeah. 
so when I uh, contacted you about coming on to uh, do a book tour about Just Like Home out in bookstores July 19th, uh, <laughs> got it this time, uh, you said, I would love to talk to you about this book on this show, especially because I had to rewrite it three times. Mm-hmm. So, I, actually, going spirit, back, I think it might be more like four. Oh my god. In the spirit of Tales from the Trunk, even though this is a book that you can and should pre-order right now from fine independent booksellers everywhere, uh, <laughs> I'll turn off the salesman voice now. Uh, being that this is Tales from the Trunk, do you have any favorite bits that got left on the cutting room floor, either in the final edits or in one of these four earlier drafts? So many. <laughs> and very, very few of them can I tell you about in detail. Of course. Um, because they're very spoilery. But basically, I, I rewrote this book top to bottom somewhere between three and four times. Um and on each rewrite, I did something major. So the first time I rewrote it, I reversed everything that you as a reader are supposed to connect with as good and sympathetic, and everything mm. that you are supposed to find repulsive and evil. I completely swapped those, which was such an educational experience for me as a as a writer of of horror, and especially of a book where I'm striving to... to Paul and disgust my reader, mm -hmm. um, I found, and this is something that I think I'm going to do in all my future books to help uncover these, these things, I found places where I was unconsciously reinforcing things I don't believe in. Oh. Um, you know, like, like really, how do I even say this in words? Well, words are hard. I, I know. And I don't know how to make those. Yeah, um, no, neither of us. I, I found places where in my attempt to transgress in the book, I was reinforcing notions of things as disgusting or wrong that, you know, my intellectual brain, my thinky self does not mm -hmm. consider disgusting or wrong, but because of the bathwater society that we live in, uh -huh. I have absorbed the idea that they're disgusting and wrong. So there were all these places where I was like, ooh, wouldn't it be weird and, and, are we a are we a fuck saying? Podcast? Oh yeah, absolutely. I already said it at the head of the show. Oh perfect. Um, wouldn't it be weird and fucked up if this thing was nice and attractive? And I found places where I had been saying, "Ooh, isn't this gross and and yucky and bad?" Mm -hmm. And when I switch which things are supposed to be considered acceptable and sympathetic and which things are supposed to be considered disgusting and wrong, all of a sudden those, you know, leaped off the page at me because it mm -hmm. was like. Oh, I can't say that, you know, this thing that I originally was saying is is appealing in a transgressive tone. I was like, oh, I can't say that that's disgusting and wrong. That's like bigoted. That's <laughs> that's evil. That reinforces, you know, ideas of what we frame as disgusting and wrong. And at first I was really frustrated because I was like, oh, man, well, this would have worked if I was saying that that was good. <laughs> but then I was like, wait a minute. I was saying that that was good in a transgressive tone of voice, so I'm I was still reinforcing the problem, mm -hmm. um, which was fascinating to uncover, but also so infuriating. I believe um, it. So that was the first big rewrite, which you know kind of broke my brain. Yep. And then in subsequent drafts, 
I moved a major character death from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, a different major character book death from the end of the book to the beginning of the book. Wait, people die different... in this? Would you believe it? I'm, um, I'm shocked. Don't worry, it's all very gentle. Okay. Yeah, a lot of soft soft focus. Um, <laughs> they all get sent off on a bed of flowers like Queen Amidala. Oh, good. Um, I Two different characters who were dead in draft one ended up not dead in draft three a whole new major character got introduced um the the entire theme of the book changed i like <laughs> i had to go through and pick out the old theme of the book and sew a new theme in oh yeah um interstitials that i had had ended up becoming part of of dialogue um i i have never changed anything as much as I changed this book and yet somehow all those changes brought out the heart of it more and more closer to the surface oh that's uh I mean one you totally took my boy Chuck out of magic for liars so, I know like, oh oh my beloved still feel for him uh I we know he was still there He's he is so happy on a farm upstate <laughs> for nice young men, um, and he just he gets to run and play all day long. Uh huh. Gets to make protagonists feel safer than they need to be in their books. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, which is what his what what chucks are made for. Yep. Uh, yep. Notably, no chucks in this book, at least in the first third. <laughs> no, not a Chuck in sight. No. Nary a Chuck to be had. Uh, I absolutely resonate with the uh, the unpicking that you had to do from that first draft, uh, especially in the context of a horror book, because, like, we all know that horror is for queer people. And there's so much, like... If you go back, I mean, if you un if you look at a lot of horror today, even like there's so much there to unpack, even when it has things to say about you know, well, a we live in a society and b b like queer stuff, but like there's you know if you go back like ten, twenty, thirty years, it gets to be very uh, woof about <laughs> queerness especially uh and i just think that there's so much vital work happening around unpicking these things in horror now um and so like it's weird to say i feel safe reading a horror book because i was you know i've i've read most of this book in like a sweltering hot car and thinking the entire time I shouldn't be reading this somebody is going to come and tap on the window of this car and I will jump completely out of my skin <laughs> and musculature just gonna be a skeleton popping out off the dream <laughs> but like at the at the same time reading this I felt I so far I have felt safe in that I know that you are taking care and like I, I trust I, I had the same experience reading the death of Jane Lawrence where I was like I 
knew that bad things were going to happen, and I also, like, implicitly trusted that Caitlin was going to take care of me as the reader in some ways. And, like, I don't know. I think that's really neat. Well, that, that trust means the world to me. I, I, I make every effort, and in this book I especially took pains to try to take care that the scary things would be scary not because they were painting any type of person as scary but instead mm-hmm. because life is fucking scary yeah. um or because especially... weird things happen to bodies right oh and that's something that i especially wanted to be careful about because i am so much writing about the body and mm-hmm. the violation of bodily uh intactness <laughs> in this book um and I never want to do that at the expense of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a major plot point in this book, this is not a spoiler, readers, it's it's like literally in the first paragraph, I think, is that uh, uh, the main character's mother is dying throughout this book. And one of the things that I kept going through and polishing and polishing and polishing is trying to make sure that we as the reader know nothing about her needing care mm-hmm. is grotesque. Nothing about her changing body is grotesque. Her changing body can be frightening in the way that we are frightened when our loved ones change suddenly, mm-hmm. but not because it's disgusting or evil in and of itself. Um, while still trying to acknowledge the intrinsic horror of watching a parent die yeah. of protracted illness, like that is a horrifying situation. And I hope I have taken enough care. I am, I am completely open to finding that I have not mm-hmm. um, and I at the same time can rest easy knowing that I have done my best yeah. with this yeah it's you know it's one of those things where like no single person can speak to speak for everybody's experience in and also like you know full disclosure my mom died when I was a kid and like you know I knew going in that this book was in part about that uh which you know was very helpful to know and also like it is really handled with a lot of care in a way that like the things that are scary about it are not to watch anybody who has been a major part of your life is grotesque Uh, to watch them die is grotesque but the like protracted illness the you know loss of ability is not the grotesque thing it is the emotion behind it that means it means the world to me that this that this book is working for you on that level and also i think that like a mission statement of this book could be the emotions are grotesque <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um so i I know it's very hard to talk about this book without spoiling things. Uh, We have just been, like, dancing around it for the last however long time is fake, who knows. Uh, Do you have a favorite part you can talk about without spoilers that made it into this final draft? Yes. Uh, There is a scene during which Vera, uh, the protagonist, you know, we, we we get scenes from her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
her father, again, this is not a spoiler. This is like jacket copy. Her father is a serial killer. Yep. Uh, and he is also her favorite person in the world. He is, he is the parent who she's closer to mm-hmm. and she craves his approval. And she also strives to emulate him because her mother is abusive and mean. And she's like, well, I don't want to be closest. I don't want to be striving to be closest to the one who seems to hate me more. Mm-hmm. Um, her father loves her, and there's a a scene in which they are fishing. Have you read this scene? Yet? I have not. I've I've read allusions to it, but I have not read okay. the fishing scene yet. Okay, so there's a scene in which they're fishing, and Vera catches her first fish, mm. and she experiences what it's like to catch a fish. She experiences the rush of power. That mm. comes with seeing something alive and vital and fighting to escape you. And she experiences what it's like for that thing to not be able to escape you. And it awakens a hunger inside of her. And writing that scene, I think at the time that I wrote it, it was the most fucked up thing I'd ever written. And it's still <laughs> up there today. Because I had to try and find a way to communicate the feeling of a child discovering what it's like to have power over something else. Mm-hmm. And that being enormously appealing. Um, also in that scene, Vera and her father have a conversation that I will not spoil for you, Hillary, but I will say that I had a blast writing it. It was so much fun. It's a conversation uh, about Vera's father's philosophy uh, of, of, of people. Oh, nice. Um, and it's exceedingly normal. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm like, I can't tell you the last time I read a book this quickly. I, like, I'm a very slow reader and NetGalley keeps on being like, oh yeah, you're like, 35% of the way done with this thing now, my dude. And I'm like, I'm what? <laughs> I cannot wait for you to finish it. I cannot wait to find out what you think. <laughs> I, there will be yelling. I guarantee. Here's hoping. Um, Sarah, it's always such a blast to have you on the show. Uh, a couple of in no way spoilery questions before we go. Uh, one, is there anything else that you have upcoming or that has come out recently? Uh, comics, for instance, anything like that, uh, that you're excited to tell people about? Yes, uh, as we are recording this, I am two days away from the collected edition of my original comic series, Eat the Rich, coming out, and eight days away from the paperback of my most recent novel, The Echo Wife coming out so i believe that when this releases readers will be able to purchase both of those everywhere books are sold excellent uh and second is there anything that you've been reading watching listening to uh i don't know like the new my my chemical romance single uh (laughs) (laughs) which i've listened to like 20 times already at this point uh it's i'm it's extremely normal, and I am okay. Trust me. You're okay. You're doing yeah. just fine. Um, 
Yeah, I, well, I've been watching, this is kind of like, apparently a throwback, everybody else knew about it before I did. I've been watching the show The Great on oh, nice. Hulu, which is about Catherine the Great, and it is so much fun. It's extremely dark comedy, mm-hmm. um, humor very much in the vein of Veep, which I also loved. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I am really loving the hell out of that. Um, as for what I've been reading long pause (laughs) double check so that i don't get the author name wrong the way i always do that's the mood i can remember either title or author and like no guarantee (laughs) either way okay um, that's the problem i have with your books is i'm like i know it's a sarah gailey book i'm gonna get (laughs) one word in this title wrong you know it's the pink one or the black one or the red one i don't know um I've been recently reading, uh, I recently read Number One Fan by Meg Ellison, which is fantastic, gender-swapped misery, um, really brutal, spectacular horror, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as Empire of the Wild by Sherry Dimeline, which is, it's a, the best way that I could sell it without, again, without spoiling anything, um, it's about... A woman whose husband goes missing and he's been missing for a year and Mm. she has kept looking for him with no success. And finally, one morning, she stumbles into a tent revival in a Walmart parking lot to find him preaching on the stage with no memory of her whatsoever. It's an incredible book. It's native horror, which is a genre that I'm really loving reading Mm -hmm. lately. Um, And so scary on like every possible level very emotionally frightening which is something that Mm. i love Mm -hmm. in a book uh so very strong recommend for both of those fantastic well listeners as always links will be in the show notes for all of those things uh sarah where can our listeners find you elsewhere in the world you can find me on my website at www.sarahgailey.com you can find me on all social media platforms at Gailey Frey, G-A-I-L-E-Y-F-R-E-Y. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter, Stone Soup, for I do a weekly digest where I talk about things I've been reading and people whose work you could be paying attention to. Um, And we also... Well worth a subscribe there. We also have a paid tier where we share books and recipes and hang out every month and have a co-working date. That's a lot of fun. Uh, so come and check that out at stone-soup.ghost.io. Fantastic. Uh, and listeners, I'm not getting paid or anything to show this. The paid tier is definitely worth it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Hillary. I did not pay Hillary to say that, and I also have no uh, <laughs> compromat to put them in this position. <laughs> Sarah, thank you again so, so much for being uh, a tireless supporter of this show and our first three-time guest. I, nobody else could have been that first other than you. Well, it is my supreme honor. Thank you so much for having me, Hillary. Of course. Listeners, stick around in two weeks when our guest will be Amanda Cook. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd.
You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbizniaks. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Don't self-reject.